Youth growing up in Southern California, that's right, I'm not a Canadian, the beach was a popular hangout during the summer. The beauty of the ocean and the waves as they crashed upon the shore took on quite a different picture for me one summer visit to the beach, however. As usual, I was out there with a million other people, hot summer day, body surfing, trying to catch one of those elusive waves as they reached their crest and have that one wave just carry you all the way to the shore. However, on this particular day, lifeguards were warning people that there was a very dangerous riptide, an undertow that was in the current of the ocean. Well, I wasn't afraid. I was a good enough swimmer to overcome such uh, a, a hindrance. And so, rather than feeling the danger, I foolishly tried to demonstrate my own manliness masculinity by going out even further into the ocean to catch the big waves. I soon realized I was gradually being pulled further and further out to sea. And I tried swimming to shore, but the harder I swam, the more I only succeeded in tiring myself out to the point that I finally realized I was unable to get safely to shore in my own strength. After several attempts of futilely trying to rescue myself, I had nearly given up all hope when all of a sudden a lifeguard appeared beside me. This is a true story, incidentally. I'm not making this one up. He told me to relax. And he safely brought me to shore. The question I ask is, who rescued me from drowning? Did I rescue myself? Did I save myself? Of course not. I had tried, but I couldn't do it. I was rescued by another. The only thing I could do was to simply rest. And allow someone else to take me to shore. I was totally helpless. And I'd like to make the same application to each of your lives today from God's Word. Dear ones, it is God who rescues sinners from certain destruction. And it's not simply drowning that God rescues sinners from. He not only rescues them from death, He rescues them from eternal death and hell. You see, dear ones, we're all caught in the undertow and riptide of sin. Every one of us, by nature, is caught in that riptide. And God has warned us. He's put up the warning signs all around us. Don't go out there in His commandments. Don't do this. Do this. God continually puts up His warning signs. We give little heed. We recklessly abandon ourselves to go out to prove something. Dear ones, the truth is 
that we are all in that most dangerous situation, even more dangerous than I was in. And no one can rescue himself. No one has the strength to rescue himself. I cannot rescue myself from sin and condemnation, and neither can you. No one has the ability to rescue himself. In fact, Romans chapter 5, verse 6, very clearly teaches this. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. When we were without strength, when we were helpless to do anything about our desperate situation, the Lord Jesus died for the ungodly. Now, that's not just one or two of you. That's all of us in the sense that we're all ungodly. Jesus Christ came to die for those who were ungodly. He did not come to die and rescue those who were righteous because there is none who is righteous. The Word of God very clearly teaches us we need a Savior if we are to live. And that Savior, according to the Word of God, is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that is what Mark's baptism today signifies and seals. That he cannot save himself. He needs a Savior. But he's not the only one who can't save himself and needs a Savior. Don't let any of you, none of you leave this building, think today that you can save yourself. That you'll be all right. You'll somehow make it. It won't happen. You will perish unless you recognize your desperate situation, your need of Christ. As we look at the passage before us today, dear ones, in Luke chapter 19, the Lord Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem for the last time before his death upon the cross. And he passes through the city of Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. Not because that was the quickest route to Jerusalem, but because he had a divine appointment with one man in particular, namely Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus didn't know that he had an appointment with the Lord on that particular day, but Jesus Christ from all eternity had set that day to meet Zacchaeus. That was the day of divine appointment. I'd like to give you three points as I progress through the sermon today. First point is the unworthiness of grace. The unworthiness of grace. None of us deserve God's grace. Think with me very quickly in verses 1 through 4. How unlikely a candidate Zacchaeus was to be rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ. How unlikely. I mean, he would have probably been the last man that you would have thought that God would have had mercy and grace upon him. And yet that's true of all of us. 
verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he sought, and he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Zacchaeus is a Hebrew name which means pure. Though it may have been the prayer of his parents that Zacchaeus would have a very pure heart before the Lord God, his life was far from pure. For we read in verse 2 that he was a tax collector. And not only a tax collector, but it says he was the chief tax collector for that area. Now, you must understand something if you're to appreciate God's mercy to Zacchaeus. You must appreciate something about the way in which tax collectors were viewed in that particular day. Now, tax collectors probably aren't viewed very highly today either. Uh, but they especially within that culture were looked down upon. In fact, there was probably not a more hated and despised profession in all of Palestine than that of the tax collector. It was placed right alongside with the prostitutes and the murderers as the epitome of wickedness in the eyes of the Jews living in Palestine. Even the Gentiles, whom the Jews called uh, unclean dogs, they would even get into heaven before the tax collectors. So the Jews said, you see, tax collectors were forbidden by the people from even coming to the synagogue to worship God. They were not even allowed inside the church building. They were stopped at the door. No, you can't come inside. They were outcasts of society because of their profession. And yet, Jesus, the scripture teaches, was found with such people, sinners and tax collectors, not in order to be like them, but because he came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek and to save those who realized that they were sinners. He didn't come to seek and to save those who didn't think they needed a doctor. He came to seek and to save those who knew they were corrupted with the disease of sin and would perish without a divine physician. And these tax collectors and these sinners realized their desperately needy condition even before the self-righteous Pharisees who boasted day and night in all of their good works and all of their good deeds and thought they could earn their way to heaven. They thought, as I thought when I was out in that ocean, the Pharisees thought, I can save myself. I, can, I have sufficient strength. I have the ability to do it. These tax collectors, dear ones, were despised on three counts. First of all, 
They were despised because they were traitors. They worked for the pagan Romans who occupied the beloved homeland of the Jews in Palestine. So they were considered traitors. Secondly, they were despised because they were unclean and defiled. Look who they hung around with. They hung around all of these Gentiles, these Romans, and all of that uncleanness rubbed off on them, upon the tax collectors as well. They were unclean. And thirdly, they were despised because they were legalized thieves. They took advantage of the oppressed in Palestine. They stole and they robbed from the poor as well as from the rich. The Romans, you see, in the way that they would collect taxes, <coughs> the Romans assessed a district of a certain, at a certain amount of taxes. They would look at this district and they say, Based on the number of people, and they would take census periodically. In fact, when uh, Mary and Joseph were going to Bethlehem, it says they were going there for the purpose of a census. The census was taken in order to determine how many lived within that district and would be paying taxes. And so the Romans would assess, based on how many lived in a particular district, what the amount of taxes uh, should come from that particular district. And then they would offer bids. They would offer, uh, allow the various tax collectors to bid upon that particular district. And the highest bidder would, in fact, uh, be the one to collect taxes from that district. Now, the tax collector, after he had met his obligation to Rome, what he had bidded to give to Rome that amount of taxes, he could charge beyond that whatever he wanted. And Rome stood behind him. And so he would abuse and take advantage of all of the people and pocket the money. And you can see, therefore, why these people were hated and despised. <clears throat> and he, Zacchaeus, was the chief tax collector. He wasn't just down at the bottom rung of the ladder. He was at the very top. He had cheated more people than anybody else to get to that position. He was especially hated and despised. Now, Zacchaeus was hardly a candidate for Citizen of the Year Award in Jericho. He was hardly a candidate for the kingdom of God, it would seem to most people. But the Lord Jesus had made an appointment to meet Zacchaeus on this particular day. <clears throat> well, why does God mention in this passage which we have read, why does God mention here Zacchaeus' profession? Why does he mention that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and that his wealth was earned by thievery? Why is that such an important thing to mention in the text of Scripture? For this reason, in order to clearly testify and show that Zacchaeus was completely unworthy of the grace and mercy of Christ. If you wanted to pick out somebody who was unworthy because of his lifestyle, this would have been 
the prime candidate, Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, unworthy of the grace of God. It's intended, dear ones, to show beyond a shadow of a doubt that God reaches out and captures all that he chooses, regardless of their desperate situation, regardless of their sin, regardless of what they've done in their life in the past. When God captures them by his grace, he gives them a new heart. He gives them faith and repentance to follow him. And it's all of God. It's not because Zacchaeus deserved it. It's not because I had the strength, remember. It's because someone else saved me. And it illustrates that very point. You know, it's not only those at the point of conversion. When a sinner comes for the first time to recognize his need of Jesus Christ, that he should be impressed with his unworthiness. But dear ones, as we live the Christian life, we should be continuously reminded of our unworthiness before God. We should be humble daily because we see how we break God's commandments, even as his children. We see how we fall short of God's Righteous judgment in his laws daily, in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. That we should be reminded that I do not deserve the least favor from a holy and a righteous God. I deserve his judgment. But for the mercy and grace of God, I would perish in that ocean of sin and condemnation but for God's mercy alone. You know, the Apostle Paul said, Christ came to save sinners of whom I am chief. That was the testimony of a very godly saint, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He saw himself as a sinner. We need to continue to see ourselves as sinners saved by the grace of God. Yes, we're now also declared to be saints because we're a holy one set apart to God, but that doesn't mean we cease sinning. It means that God has set us apart unto Himself from the world unto Himself. Yes, we're the children of God. Praise God for all of the benefits with which He has blessed us. But yet, dear ones, we must be continually reminded of our unworthiness. And that's what we see in Zacchaeus. We are all Zacchaeuses. Every single last one of us is a Zacchaeus. We have robbed and we have stolen from God. We have robbed and stolen His glory. His commandments which He has given to Him, we have not repaid. We have not fulfilled them. We have not kept them all. We have violated them. Thereby, we have stolen from God what He deserves. See, we're all Zacchaeuses. We're all chief tax collectors standing in need of the grace of God. Second of all, the second point is not only the unworthiness of grace, the first point, but now, second, the call of grace. The call of grace. 
Dear ones, in spite of the unlikelihood that Zacchaeus would become a soldier in Christ's army, note the gracious call that rescues Zacchaeus in verses 3 through 5. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was short of stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Zacchaeus had evidently heard of Jesus. It was pretty hard living in that area in Palestine not to have heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. After After all, how could you possibly conceal and hide news of one like Jesus? He raised the dead. He cast out demons from the oppressed. He multiplied bread and fish to feed literally thousands of people. He opened the ears of the deaf and freed the tongues of the mute, gave sight to the blind and caused the lame to leap for joy. And most recently, as he came into Jericho, there was a blind man sitting along the side of the road by the name of Bartimaeus. And he had just healed Bartimaeus and the crowds were following him as he came into Jericho. Zacchaeus heard the noise. He heard the uproar. He heard, he said, "Uh, who's coming into town? And he heard that the Lord Jesus was coming into town. And he desired to simply catch a glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Zacchaeus runs along the road. It's lined with people. And you can imagine this short little guy trying to worm his way through the crowd. And people see who it is. Ah, the tax collector, huh? And they begin nudging him. No way are you going to get in front of me. And they keep him from being able to see. And you know, he jumps as high as he can to see over the shoulders he can't see. He can't see anything uh, along the road. How is he going to be able to see this man, the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, he figures out that up the way there's a sycamore tree. So a large tree with large branches and thick foliage. And so he climbs up into this tree, to one of those large limbs. And he doesn't climb up into the tree in order to be seen. He climbs up into this tree, I believe, to be hidden. Because, as I said, sycamore trees were trees that had very thick foliage as well. He climbs up there to be able to see, but not to be seen. Zacchaeus would be able, in the safety of that tree to satisfy his curiosity in order to see the Lord in the least conspicuous way so it would seem. And it doesn't appear that he had any desire from the text that we have read. It doesn't appear he had any desire to have some kind of personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't begin shouting while he was up in the tree, Lord Jesus, Look at me! I'm up here in the tree! Like blind Bartimaeus did. Remember, blind Bartimaeus was shouting and people said, "Ah, Be quiet! You're making a nuisance out of yourself. 
And he kept shouting until finally the Lord Jesus came. Well, Zacchaeus wasn't going that route. He wasn't doing that. He was up there trying to be as inconspicuous as possible. The scripture, the text says, he sought to see who Jesus was in verse 3. Not he sought to know who Jesus was. Or that he sought to believe in Jesus Christ. Or he sought to show his love for Jesus Christ. He wanted to see Jesus. That's all it says. And so this is clearly not a case or an example of a man seeking the Lord Jesus Christ before Christ calls him and finds him. This is an example of a man who's simply curious, who happens to be in the crowd, but is not calling out for mercy from the Lord at all. Because the Scripture teaches very clearly In Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. No human being seeks after God in their own power, in their own strength, in their own desire. No one seeks after the living God unless God first calls him and gives him the desire, gives him the heart, gives him faith and repentance. No one seeks after God, is what the Word of God itself says. And so this is not, dear ones, a case of a man cooperating with God, doing his part, reaching out to Jesus Christ, and Christ simply returning the favor. No, that's not what is happening here at all. In fact, the scripture again says, and compares our desperate situation before coming to Christ as being dead in our trespasses and sins. If anything, we're more like Lazarus, who was dead four days in a grave. Now, did Lazarus, Call out to the Lord, Lord, raise me from the dead. Have mercy upon me, Lord. No. Lazarus was dead and was called forth from the dead. The Word of God teaches us in Ephesians 2.1, And you, speaking to those believers in Ephesus, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You were once like Lazarus. You who believe in Jesus Christ were once dead, but the Lord God called you from your spiritual grave and gave you life, gave you faith and repentance. And that's why you have responded. That's why you love the Lord. That's why you seek to obey Him. That's why you will not and cannot turn your backs upon God and go back into that grave. Because you've been born again to new life. In Christ. However, what this account of Zacchaeus does very clearly teach is that it is God who sovereignly calls his own unto himself. Christ goes out, as I said, by divine appointment to seek his own and to call Zacchaeus unto himself. The Lord does not wait for an invitation from Zacchaeus, but as a royal king, he says, Zacchaeus, Come down, because I'm going to your house. He doesn't say, Zacchaeus, uh, 
you know, would it be all right if I came over? You know, we kind of hung around for a little while, talked. He says, Zacchaeus, come down because I'm going to your house. You see, this picture of the Lord Jesus Christ that many churches portray and many Christians have, that Jesus is just very weakly, very patiently knocking at people's doors and pleading with people, that is not the picture that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ in the Word of God. Jesus Christ, when He comes to the life of a person, He opens that person's heart. In fact, that's what the Scripture says. Concerning Lydia, in Acts 16.14, and I quote, The Lord opened Lydia's heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. God opened her heart. That's how the Lord Jesus comes to a person's life. He is the sovereign Lord and the King. And notice also, before we move to the last point, notice also, he says, I must stay at your house. I must stay. There's a necessity that I must. You are one of God's people and I must come to your house because today is the day of salvation for you and your household. Notice what he says in verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Not only has salvation come to Zacchaeus as an individual, but salvation has come to the whole household. All of the children, the servants. Zacchaeus had a lot of possessions. Had a lot of servants, no doubt. A wealthy man. Salvation has come to this whole household. That's why we believe in household baptism. That's why we not only baptize adults, parents, but we baptize children because we believe the Scripture teaches that the Lord God brings salvation, brings His covenant not only to adults, but to children as well. He redeems all of His people. The Lord opened Zacchaeus' heart to heed and to hear the message which he brought to him that particular day, dear ones. <clears throat> Don't miss the essence of salvation here that is portrayed to us. What is the essence of the covenant which God makes with his people? What does it really mean to be a Christian? It means above all else, dear ones. It means above all else. Certainly being a Christian means having your sins forgiven. And that's a wonderful blessing. It means being the children of God. That's a wonderful blessing. But above all else, salvation and being a Christian means communion with the living God. It means being joined to the living God. It means that God has given Himself to you. Now, wives, when your husband says to you, Honey, I love you and I want to show you I love you by let's going off and spending some time together. Just you and me. Because 
I want to show you in this way. There's nothing more that a wife wants to hear than that her husband wants to spend time with her. Considers that to be absolutely wonderful. And husbands, take note. You really want to bless your wives. That's how you do it. You don't go out and buy them you know, endless things. What they really want is you. They want you to give yourself unto them. To love them and serve them. To talk with. To find security and safety under your arm. That's what wives desire. And God says that to his people. He says, I give myself to you in eternal communion and fellowship. You are my people. And I am your God. And I will dwell with you. You see, that's the essence of this covenant. That is what Jesus is saying. I'm coming to your house, Zacchaeus. And we will have fellowship together and communion together. <clears throat> Salvation, dear ones, is primarily enjoying the blessedness of fellowship with God. <clears throat> it's interesting how many people say out of one side of their mouth, I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. But you ask them, well, why do you want to go to heaven? Because I don't want to go to hell. You see, if you cannot enjoy God here upon the earth, what makes you think you're going to enjoy Him for all eternity in heaven? If you find God someone that you want to avoid now and have little to do with now, why is anything going to be different in heaven? If there are too many things crowding God out of your life now, heaven isn't going to change anything. God will be our all in all in heaven. So don't deceive yourself, dear ones. True salvation is in fellowship and communion with the living God and enjoying Him, making Him Lord of every area of your life. Finally, the last thing I want to say, the last point, is the evidence of grace. The unworthiness of grace, the call of grace, and now the evidence of grace in Zacchaeus' life. Look at verses 6 through 8. So he made haste and came down and received him, received Christ joyfully. But when they saw it, and the they there no doubt refers to people like the Pharisees, the detractors of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. <clears throat> 
There is no one, dear ones, there is no one who can genuinely claim to be a Christian who does not give evidence of God's grace in his life. Simply mouthing the profession without any evidence in one's life is a lie. If one is a Christian, there is going to be ample demonstration and evidence of that in his life or her life. This is what this portion of the Word of God teaches. Beloved, if Christ is living and abiding in your life, he will surely give evidence of that in your life by the same fruit that sprang forth in the life of Zacchaeus. And it didn't take ten years to be able to see this fruit in Zacchaeus' life. It was an immediate expression of what God had done in his life. That the living God had come and dined and fellowshiped with him. That he had entered into communion with the, the creator of the universe. With the savior of his soul. And now, he gives evidence of that by what he says and what he does. And there are basically two evidences <clears throat> that he gives. The first one we find in verse 6. And that is the enjoyment of Christ. Notice he says, So he made haste and came down and received him, that is Christ, joyfully. He didn't receive Christ reluctantly. He didn't receive Christ begrudgingly. Christ did not have to yank at his arm, put it to, twist his arm behind his back. He received Christ joyfully. That was one in the first demonstration of the grace of God in Zacchaeus' life. He ran to have communion with Christ. He didn't run away from communion with Christ. He ran to communion with Christ. He had a love now for the word of Christ. He was sitting, as it were, on the edge of his seat, waiting to hear the very words that would fall from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that the way that you come to church? Do you come to hear the word of God? Do you come to hear what Jesus Christ, speaking through his word, will say to you, his people? See, that's the kind of evidence that God says is evidence of a genuine faith in Christ. Joy at hearing. Hungering and thirsting for Christ's righteousness. Joyful submission to Him. Those are the evidences. The Apostle Paul <clears throat> speaks of this joy, this enjoyment of Christ when he says, Rejoice in the, in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Find your joy and your contentment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't find your contentment and don't try to find your contentment in the things of this world. You won't find contentment. It will be like that elusive butterfly. You'll never be able to find true contentment as long as you are looking for it in the things of this world. It will always elude you. The only one in whom you will find true and genuine contentment is in the Lord Jesus Christ because only He gives true life. 
And only he can never be taken away from you. All of your possessions can be taken away from you. Your health can be taken away from you. Your wealth can be taken away from you. Your family can be taken away from you. But only Christ cannot be taken away from you. Find your joy and your contentment in him. That is what Zacchaeus did when it says he came down from the tree and he ran joyfully. He found his contentment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second thing that evidences his faith is this, that genuine faith and repentance are evidenced by his obedience and his restitution. He wasn't content, you see, to simply leave matters the way that they were. Oh, uh, thank you, Lord, for, for saving me from my sin and uh, forget about everybody else. doesn't matter. No, he was interested in making things right with everybody. That was an evidence of genuine faith in his life. He made restitution to all that he had uh, stolen from. It's quite interesting. He not only made the restitution that was required, it says in the Word of God that if you, uh, the, the type of restitution that one is to make if they steal and they actually find the possession still. Uh, within the uh, the house or or whatever of that person who had uh, stolen, if they find them still there, that he is to give them back their possessions and add one fifth. That's the restitution. But if the person who has stolen ends up spending that, ends up uh, uh, using it frivolously, no longer has it, he is to pay fourfold for what he has stolen because he's even wasted and spent it. Well, the things that Zacchaeus had taken, he no doubt still had. I mean, they were accumulated in his property and everything like that. And so what he would have been required was to do under the law was to give back what he had stolen from people and add one-fifth. But he says, no, I will add fourfold. He goes the extent Beyond what he was required to, this was genuine evidence of a change of heart. Where there was envy and covetousness and greed before, now he has sacrificed all. He's willing to give up all to follow Christ. Evidence, biblical evidence of the work of God's grace in his life. What a contrast between Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler in in Luke 18. The rich young ruler would not follow Christ because he had many possessions. It kept him from Christ. Zacchaeus was willing to give almost all of it away to follow Christ because Christ had become his life, his joy, his contentment. In conclusion, dear ones, Peter, you'll recall... And Matthew 14 needed a Savior. He saw Christ walking on the water, coming to him in the, in the boat. The disciples were in the boat. And he saw Christ walking upon the water and he cried out, he said, Lord, that you command me to walk upon the water. And the Lord said, come on out, Peter. And Peter began walking, actually walking on the water. But soon he began to look at the the waves and began to feel the, the wind, the storm that was upon the sea. And as he looked, 
he took his eyes off of the Lord and began to sink, sink down into the water. And he cried out to the Lord Jesus, he said, Have mercy, Lord, save me. And the Lord reached out and pulled Zacchaeus out of the water and together they walked back to the boat. Now, Peter was a Christian already. Peter was an apostle of Jesus Christ, but Peter was reminded through that particular account that it is always and only the Lord Jesus Christ who saves, who rescues. We can never depend upon our own strength, our own righteousness, our own selves, that we must always look to Christ. Not only when we first become a Christian, but for all of our Christian life, it is only Jesus who saves. Our faith must be in Him. Our trust must be in Him. And not in ourselves. You know, such a view, dear ones, of salvation brings infinite glory to God because it shows us it is not we who save ourselves. This view of salvation points always to God that He is the one who saves. And that's why when we preach the Word of God, Christ must be the focus of our preaching. God must be the focus of our preaching. Not our goodness, not our worthiness, but always pointing to the Lord Jesus. When we gather together, we are not here to simply pat one another upon the back. We should encourage one another. But the reason we come together is to worship God. Our focus, our worship is directed to Him. Everything, dear ones, in life becomes God-centered with this view of salvation. I've never forgotten how I was rescued from being swallowed up in death by that vast ocean of water. But more importantly, I daily seek to remind myself how I have been rescued from being swallowed up in the vast ocean of sin and hell by the Lord Jesus Christ. And why was I rescued? In order that I might serve myself? In order that I might serve my own sinful desires? God forbid but rather that I might serve forever the one who loved me and gave his life for me and rescued me from certain death, even the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Mark's baptism signifies and seals, dear ones. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which is lost. Trust him today. Repent of your sins. Turn to Him, whether you've never professed Him or whether you have already professed Him. Renew your covenant vows and follow Him today. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise You and thank You now in the name of Jesus our Savior for Your infinite goodness and mercy which You have bestowed upon us. For we are all Zacchaeuses. We have gone our own way. We have robbed and stolen from you. 
We have offended those who are dearest to us. Father, we pray that you would forgive us in your mercy and your love. We ask, Lord, that you would grant to us genuine repentance, that we would not simply once have repented of our sins, but that, God, we would daily turn from our sins, that we would daily cling to Jesus Christ and see our need of a Savior. We thank you, our God, that you have rescued us and we pray that we would live daily in light of that wondrous salvation. We pray, Father, that we would not show contempt for your mercy, for your grace, by living according to our own desires and our own will. And we ask all of these things in the blessed name of Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom 
when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.